Okay, today is February the 16th, 2008. We're going to have another Logos class, uh, not this coming Saturday. Did I say 2008? I just want to see if y'all were listening. It's pretty bad when you missed it four years, isn't it? Okay, today is February... The 16th, 2012, and we have a Logos class um, the 25th, which will not be this coming Saturday, but the following Saturday. And by the way, that Friday, the 24th, we're going to have Friday night at the movies. So, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know, our SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word and that it, like you, are immutable. It changes not. And it is alive and powerful. So we pray that you will help us to focus, to concentrate, not let our minds wander so that we can be better prepared to stand firm for the faith. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to review a little that we went over last time, which was Tuesday. And you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. What we're doing is going over verses that... People take out of context, they have the wrong hermeneutical approach. It means they do not inter- in- interpret it or uh, <clears throat> are able to rightly divide the word. <clears throat> so we're going to do those verses that will help us understand that there is nothing added to faith when it comes to eternal salvation. The mistake that most people make is by giving a positional slant to verses that are experiential. That's the number one cause of misinterpreting verses. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23... This is a little bit more difficult. We took a little more time going over it. There's certain things that you would not notice in the English that I'm going to point out. It's in the Greek that helps us get the right definition here, the right take. Colossians 1.21 And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 22, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Then we have this conditional clause which throws some people. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away, from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. 
Now, I left out all the notes in between that, I, that we filled in just to give you a, a reading of the text as you will see it in your Bible. We already established that this was believers, that he was addressing believers. So he's not talking to unbelievers and trying to give them a take on how to be saved. And we find that believers were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Now, that probably describes every person before they become a believer. But what some people don't understand is that also describes believers after they have been eternally saved. And we're going to see that that is the context here as we go through it quickly compared to what we did last time. Hopefully you will see that. When it says, yet he has now reconciled you. And this is a, an aorist active indicative. He reconciled these believers, and it would pertain to us as well, in a moment of time, it's the Lord who did it, and it's indicative mood, and it is reality. And it says he did this, he reconciled us through death, that's Jesus Christ, in order to present you before him holy and blameless. So, when we think of Christ reconciling us by his death on the cross, we automatically think of what? Eternal salvation. That we had to be reconciled to God if we were ever going to have any relationship with Him. If we're going to live with Him in heaven, we have to be reconciled. And as unbelievers, we have nothing that we can do to accomplish that. But what we cannot do, God did for us through Christ on the cross. And so it does have a positional aspect to it to that degree. But the problem is in the word that we have here, reconciled. Reconciled is, the, the Greek word there is apokatalasso. A-P-O-K-A-T-A-L-L-A-S-O. And why that is very important is because it is a stronger word than just katalasso. When you add the apa, A-P-O, to it, it changes it. The word katalasso means to reconcile, to set up a relationship of peace not existing before. So that would suggest, if they use that word, that it was talking about the issue of not having a relationship with God as an unbeliever, but being reconciled to God in a positional sense to where now you would have something that you did not have before. Now that's if that word was used, katalaso, but that word was not used. The word that was used is apa, apa katalaso. Now, look what that word means. It is uh, <clears throat> it's actually a stronger word than just katalasso, and it's used to mean the, a restoration of fellowship of peace which has been disturbed or that got off track. Now, what does that tell us? It's not talking about establishing a relationship that was not there before, which is what happened when we were unbelievers. This is talking about restoring a relationship that had gotten off track. See, he just said in the verse that uh, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, in other words, they got off track. And what this would suggest by using this word, 
would be that it's talking about getting off track post-salvation-wise. In other words, these were believers who got off track, and now one of the things that he is saying is when Jesus Christ died on the cross, let me just scroll down to where I covered this, uh, Christ's death on the cross accomplished reconciliation, which has two purposes. First of all, positionally, uh, we were reconciled to God instantly and completely, and it was accomplished at the moment one believes in Jesus Christ. We would call this the top circle. So that's one purpose and one result of being reconciled by Christ's death in the flesh. Here's a verse that would substantiate that. Hebrews 10:14. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's a done deal. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are permanently in Christ. You have God's righteousness. You have eternal life. None of these things can be taken away. That is one way and one purpose of Christ going to the cross was to reconcile us positionally to where we are in that safe, secure, permanent position. We all understand that. However, there's another way. He also <clears throat> died in order to experientially reconcile us by continuing firmly and steadfast in the faith, which is the bottom circle. In other words, had He not gone to the cross and done the work that He did, which enables us, post-salvation-wise, to have what it takes in order to... Uh, Stand, uh, stand firmly and steadfast in the faith. Had he not done that, of course, we would not be able to do that. And here's a verse that correlates to that. Colossians 1.28, a few verses down from the Scriptures we're looking at. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's only a potential here you have, when he says we, this is talking about Paul and the apostles that uh, were his protégés. They were proclaiming him, Christ, admonishing, teaching, correcting every man with all wisdom. Why? The purpose wasn't to save them. They're already saved. He's talking about believers here. So that they may be able to present every man complete in Christ. Now, when we go up here, look how this looks with regards to our verse. Yet He has now reconciled us through, the, through death, and this is a purpose clause, this is in verse 22, in order to present you, that would be believers, before Him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Well, where is this presentation going to take place? Where it's going to take place when believers are already resurrected. The rapture will have already been taken place. And we will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is when those who have stood firm in the faith, established and steadfast, and they did not move away, they didn't get distracted, get off course, and they held on to the hope of the gospel, the good news that you have heard. In other words, these are the ones that are going to be presented in a special way. You see how that comports with what we see here in Colossians 
teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It appears that there is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ that when a believer stands before Jesus Christ to be um, presented and evaluated to determine if they're going to get rewards or not, that the pastor is going to be there as well. We get this from Hebrews chapter uh, 17. Let me go there, make sure. Let's see, where is my Bible? still in my briefcase. Okay. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 with me. 17. I think it's Hebrews 13, 17 or Hebrews 17, 17. I think it's 13, 17. 13? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Look at Hebrews 13, 17. This is why I said what I did just then. By the way, I remember Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Well, I didn't remember 13 that well that time, but... I usually do because people who think that they don't need a pastor teacher or that they can challenge the pastor teacher on every little jot and tittle and just disregard his teaching and so forth. Look at verse 7, first of all. Remember those who led you, and the King James Version says, has rule over you and who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith, that is, their doctrine, the doctrine that they teach. Then verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So I, what it appears is that at the judgment seat of Christ, when it's your turn to stand before Jesus Christ, that the uh, a pastor will be there and give an account about this believer. And according to this, it says, look at it again, for they keep watch over your souls as those who give, who give an account... In other words, how, how does, how does uh, and the leaders here is uh, referring to uh, the pastor teachers in context. They keep watch over your souls by teaching you doctrine as those who will give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So if I have to give an account to the Lord about you, at the judgment seat of Christ, it would only be profitable to you if I do it with joy. In other words, if I'm reading this correctly, and it's the judgment seat of Christ, and the Lord says, okay, we're going to look at Country Bible Church, and we're going to look at Mr. or Mrs. whoever it is. And I have, maybe it appears that I will have to give an account. In other words, am I going to say, all right... I'm so happy. Or am I going to say, oh, wow, man. <sighs> if I'm doing that, just think what you're going to be doing. Okay? 
Now, let's go back to where we were over here in Colossians 1.28 and see how this compares. Colossians 1.28. We, these communicators of doctrine, proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing, teaching uh, every man with all wisdom, all knowledge, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I don't know how it's going to go down. I don't know how God is going to arrange it. Maybe He'll do it by local churches. I don't know. I'm just speculating. And when He calls, okay, it's time for a country Bible church. And the pastor would go up there and stand there and say, okay. The congregation, according to this verse, is saying, I better stand there and be able to give a report with joy. Because it says it's to your benefit if I do that. If I have to... Say, oh man, this is not going to be fun. It's going to be even less fun for you, is the idea. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, here's an excerpt from a, a journal, and I'm not going to read through, uh, through all of it. This was by Bob Wilkins. Very good. I included the whole thing in my notes. But here's a few keys that he was he was talking about in his. Uh, in his paper, where some people get mixed up and thrown off. One of them, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moving away from the hope that you heard. And let's see, in order that you may be presented before him holy and blameless. Do you consider yourself holy and blameless? No, I don't either. And this is where some people get off base because uh, they think they take these words in a more literal sense than what they are they're, they're meant. It's a relative sense, not an absolute sense that these are given. And in his paper, he says that there are other scriptures in the Bible that say, uh, for instance, uh, a, a command that you be holy as, because God is holy. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be holy in the same way that God can, but it does mean that in a relative sense we can be holy. It means that in a relative sense we can be blameless. In a relative sense we can be beyond reproach. Now, don't get mixed up. I'm not saying that in the positional sense it's not relative. In a positional sense, when we were reconciled to God because of Christ's death on the cross, we are perfectly holy and we're perfectly blameless and we're perfectly beyond reproach. And why is that? What do we have that would meet that criteria? What was given to us by God that in a positional sense that would mean these are not relative, these are perfect? What do we have? Plus R. We have God's righteousness. So in a, in a positional sense... We are indeed, we, stand, we are in Christ and we are perfectly blameless, holy, and beyond reproach in a positional sense. But this is not talking about the positional sense because we just saw in the word reconcile, apokatalaso is referring to not establishing a new relationship, but restoring one that was, got off track. Okay? 
Let's see what else we have here. I think that's going to do it. So here's the main thing that I want you to see is when you get down to this part, uh, see, if you were reading this and you didn't understand the difference between positional and experiential, if you were a got into Reformed theology or you thought that you had to maintain your salvation, then it would say, well, Christ uh, went to the cross in His fleshly body through death. He did all that to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And somebody would say, see there? You've got to be holy and blameless beyond reproach or else you're going to lose your salvation. Or some would say, or else you're just a professor of profess Christ, but you didn't really accept Christ. You're not even really saved. You see the slant that we have to be ready to rebut? That's why we're going over these verses. Let's see where we are. I think we can get on down the road now. These are just comments that I made. You can look at them on the website. Here is his... This is a very good uh, article. It's, It's only a page or so long by Bob Wilkin, the whole article is, is entitled, Is Continuing in Faith a Condition of Eternal Life? This is what some people would put a spin, yet yes it is. That you have to continue in the faith. And if you don't, if you're not beyond reproach and blameless, then your eternal life is possibly on the line. Any questions before we move on? Because I'm moving on. Look at all this. Okay, here we are. Since y'all don't have any questions, and if I gave you an exam right now and I ask you all the aspects about Colossians 1, 21 through 23, you can nail it, right? Oh, uh, yeah, everybody goes, oh, yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> See how well you do. Okay, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Here's another verse. See, we're going over these verses that people would put a positional spin on, which would mean that you have to do something other than believe in Christ to either maintain or secure salvation. Romans chapter 8. Now, I didn't get all this in here. Let's start a little close. I mean, uh, instead of starting with verse 12, let's start a little, uh, a little sooner to get some more context here. We'll start in verse 5. Let me tell you how important Romans chapter 8 is. It's got 39 verses in it. And at my mother-in-law's funeral, actually it wasn't her funeral, it was at the grave site, her request is that the, I did the, the funeral, another pastor did the uh, grave site, and her request was that he read the entire chapter, which he did at the grave site. There is so much in Romans 8, 28... I mean, in Romans 8, except just Romans 8, 28. That's what most people remember about Romans 8, but there's a lot. So see if you can stick with me, starting with verse 5, to, to gain some context so that we can make sure that we have this right. Verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things that are of the Spirit. Now this is just talking about um, whatever whatever your mind is, if you if you if you're on fleshly, worldly things, it says, 
then if you set your minds on these things, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on it. So if you're fleshly, you set your mind on the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So you can set your mind on the things of the flesh or the Spirit. Verse 6, For the mind set on the flesh, and what the word there is sarks. What do, what do you remember about the flesh? What is that referring to so often? The OSN, the old sin nature. For the mind set on the flesh, fleshly things, dominated by the old sin nature, is death. Now, there's seven types of death. This is what we might call operational death. Spirit, spiritually wise, it's as if you're dead. It doesn't mean you're spiritually dead and you don't have a spirit. But it means you've checked yourself off the field. You're no longer on the playing field. You're on the sidelines. It's the same as if you're dead because if you're occupied with the flesh, you can't do anything spiritually. So, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, the spiritual thing is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. So if your mind is set on the flesh, then it's hostile towards God. Any time that you, your mind is flirting, Maybe I shouldn't say flirting. Maybe I just should say dominated by a mental attitude sin, you are in the flesh. That means every time that you worry about something, you are in the flesh. And that line of thinking is hostile towards God. Now, that should have hit everybody right between the eyes because I believe everybody is prone to worry. And when you're worrying, then you are occupied with the flesh. The old sin nature is dominating and that's hostile to God. For when you are in the flesh, we might say when you're in carnality, you are a person that is not subject to the law of God. You can't even begin to be subject to the law of God if you are in carnality. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, period. When the old sin nature has taken control of your command post, your soul, I don't care what you do. You can be an aesthetic. You can have self-effacement. You can force yourself to be nice to someone you can't stand. But it's not pleasing to God because He's not involved in it. Verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that's a first-class conditional clause, and He does. <clears throat> but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this is equating the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ, which is just another place where you can uh, explain that Jesus Christ is God. This is talking about the deity of Christ. In other words, the Spirit of God is analogous to the Spirit of Christ here, who is God. If anyone does not have the Spirit, that means if anyone is not indwelt by the Spirit, he does not belong to Him. He doesn't belong to Christ. 
Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, by the way, that's the first class conditional clause, meaning he's talking to believers here, and he is. Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And what that's saying is, uh, <clears throat> is that if Christ is in you and he is in you. See, we always talk about us being in Christ. Now, this is talking about Christ being in us. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, meaning that your body has no part to play in the spiritual life, the old sin nature and the things you do on your, we might call that uh, human viewpoint, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. What kind of righteousness is that? That's imputed righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's first class, I mean it's true, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So here he's talking about an indwelling spirit. Now I gave you all that to give a flavor because in verse 12, it, you might even have a break in your Bible if you have a study Bible. Um, my Bible is the Ryrie Study Bible, New American Standard, and it's a pericope there that says exalted living, starting in verse 12, because there is a, a, a subject chain. I mean, there's a, there's a shifting gears here. Up to this point, he's just giving them principles, but now in verse 12, he's going to start talking directly to them. See? Verse 12, he says, So then, brethren... Now he's making it personal. So then, brethren, we are under... We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now remember, this, this is our verse that we have up on the board that is where we were getting to. I was trying to put it all in context. So the believers were not under obligation to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living... I better read what I have up here because i got a little bit different translation here. I'm going to read off of what I have. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, here's where it gets sticky for some. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Does this mean that if a believer does not continue to be led by the Spirit of God, that, he is, that there is a danger that he will lose his salvation? Of course, we know that's not so. Does it mean that if a person professes to be a believer but does not continue to be led by the Spirit that he was not truly born again? No, but this is what people will do. See, this is what you have to be able to handle. And a lot of it is in that word right there, huios. H-O-U-H-U-I-O-S. I'll get to that in a moment. We're going to start with verse 14 where it says, "For For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. And who is the all that are being led by the Spirit of God? I put here, 
mature believers. I, and I, I'm not saying that an immature believer or a baby believer cannot uh, be led by the Spirit of God. They can. But this being led is the Greek word ago, A-G-O, and it's a present passive indicative. The present tense means they are continuing to be led by God. They, I mean, by the Holy Spirit. Baby believers are not, con- they don't make it continuous to be led by God. They are here a little bit. They have to get their, their sea legs. They're not used to rebound and then uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and going for any amount of time, being able to trust the Lord, being out of worry, being out of all the mental attitude sins that are trying to bombard them. They're knocked off, off center very easy. And then they get to where they say, oh, man, I'm miserable. What's the matter? Oh, yeah, I've got mental attitude sins. What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to confess those sins. They confess those sins. Again, they're spiritual, but they don't go a whole long time usually before they're knocked, knocked off again. So I think this is talking about mature believers. Ago means to be consistently led by the Holy Spirit. A believer must do two things in order to be consistently led by the Holy Spirit. Number one, they need to pray, which, by the way, includes rebound. You are not going to consistently be led by the Holy Spirit if you don't pray. And the first thing you do when you pray is make sure that you're going to the Lord in spirit and in truth. You need to be truthful with Him. You need to acknowledge your sins. And when you do that, then you're what? You're filled with the Holy Spirit then you can have the Holy Spirit lead you. But what that does is make you spiritual. But what if you're a baby believer and the only thing that you know is that Christ died for you? Uh, the, The Lord doesn't say, time out, Satan, and all the demons and all the temptations. We're going to hold those at bay until this believer starts to grow up and learns how to use this rebound better. That's not how it happens. I mean, a baby believer is still tempted by the world, flesh, and the devil, and so forth. And so they need more than just rebound in order to be consistently led by the Holy Spirit. And why is that? They have no doctrine. It takes time to develop and learn doctrine, to have a resource of truth in your soul, that you can connect the dots and you can start applying these doctrines that, you, that you've learned to your situations. And so that's why it takes two things. Not only does it take rebound, and which comes through prayer, it also takes the consistent intake of doctrine to where you are changing uh, in uh, Romans chapter uh, 12. It's talking about we are what? We have to be transformed where? In our mind. That, and that takes time. So once you start getting those doctrines and it goes into your long-term memory, then you are able to consistently be led by the Spirit. A baby believer can be led by the Spirit in a limited time or a limited way. They don't know much doctrine, but they ought to know at least how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I wouldn't include them and for all who are being led by the Spirit of God because they, they don't have the doctrine that they need to learn how to apply it to circumstances. What about believers who 
don't rebound, pray, or consistently take in doctrine? Are they in danger of losing their sonship status? Could it be that they just thought that they were elect, but not really, but really were not, because they're they're not con- continuing and being led? And here's the thing. Make sure you get this, because here's the key in this whole thing. I'll show you up here. I said it a while ago. Is this word right here? Sons. See, weos. That's key. I'm going to show you why I'm talking about. All believers are sons of God in a positional sense. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a son of God. Well, if you're female, I guess you could be a daughter of God, but the Bible keeps it all the masculine. It doesn't matter who, what your sex is. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God. Only the verses say sons. Here we have Galatians 3.26. For you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Are all believers spiritually mature? Isn't this, what does this word mean? It means mature. See, you have napios, which is a, is a baby believer, and you have technon, which is referring to children, and then you have huios, which is an adult. Are all, ba- are all, all believers spiritual adults? Huh. I, Sometimes you'll be around a group where finding a spiritually adult, spiritual adult is like trying to find hen's teeth, so they say. I've got a lot of hens, but I've never checked their mouths. I don't know if they have teeth or not, but that's what they say. I doubt that I'll find any. I only have uh, hens. Oh, no, no. The tour here, adult of God, this does not appear. Believers as a everything they need, they're uh, by me. Why? Because it doesn't depend on them. God is Christ is sent. We probably believe in Jesus Christ. That's why that word here is taking it. By son, experientially sanctified. Our children are sons. Since there are sons that have a son. Matthew chapter 5. They call the other enemies and pray for those. Luke 6.35. But love your enemies and do good. If a Christian brother and when they but that's not for the will be sons of the most high. Look at Revelation twenty one seven. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. See, these are people who are inheritors, are what we would call sons indeed. Just think if you were a, a let's say you were a father and you had two sons, and one of them was a prodigal and went away. He rejected everything that you had for him. You had no relationship with him. He purposely uh, was estranged from his father. And then there was another son that lived at home and just loved his father, would do anything that his father said because he respected him so much. And there was a great bond between them. In that scenario, that man may answer a question like this. Do you, have, do you have a son? Well, this man might say, well, in fact, I have two sons. He says, I have one son that I don't see very much. Then I have a son indeed. You see what I'm talking about? 
That's the idea here. The New Testament contrasts believers with unbelievers, but the majority of the time it contrasts faithful believers with mediocre, unfaithful believers. Now, I'm not saying that it never contrasts believers with unbelievers. It does sometimes. But it's, a very, it's rare compared to what is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the case is when it contrasts faithful believers with mediocre, unfaithful believers, positive believers with negative believers, those who endure with those who give up, winners with losers. And every day we make decisions that determine whether we are going to be babies. We're talking about spiritually wise. Napios, whether we're going to be children, technon, whether we're going to be adult sons experientially, which is huios, are partakers, metakoi, in our relationships with the Lord. So it's up to you. The Lord has it. There's nothing that our Lord would, would want more than to be intimate with you that He could share and give you so many blessings, that you could grow in capacity to where you could trust Him and He could give you more and more and your cup would run over. That's what He wants. But He doesn't force it on anyone. Each of us individually make decisions every day whether we're just going to be a son, like the prodigal son that the Lord really... He is the Lord's son. He is His Father's son, but it's... it's uh, they're estranged. There's really hardly any relationship there. Or we can choose to be a son indeed. Now, who in their right mind would not want to be a son indeed to the Most High? But it's the choices that we make that determine that. Some contend that Persevering in holiness is necessary to maintain salvation by using the present tense argument. I don't think I'm going to go there tonight because it's, um, it's technical. And it takes, uh, I've got ten minutes before I would completely run out of time. And I think I'll save that for uh, Tuesday night. And I'm going to get into some grammar. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm surprised at how how many people are so ignorant when it comes to grammar, and I'm talking about English grammar, and to understand and rightly divide the word of truth, knowing some grammar is going to help you. Because somebody will say that, I'll just tell you this much, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His uniquely born Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And they say, look at the believing there. Look at the morphology of that. Do you know what it is? Would you think that it would be a aorist active indicative? Meaning that in a point in time, you believe, and it's, or maybe a subjunctive, that it's only a potential that you are going to believe. Would you suspect that what it, is, that's what it would be? Are you all understanding what I'm saying? I would think that. That's the way we quote it. That's the way uh, people mean it. For God so loved the world that He gave His uniquely born Son that whoever believes, maybe they will and maybe they won't, and they need to do it at a point in time. Isn't that the way that we describe it? you know the morphology of that word? It's a present active participle. Now, see, I see 
Already the washboard's developing. What's a participle? Well, I'm going to show you Tuesday what a participle is and why it's important to know that. But here's the main thing. It's a present tense. And there are people, usually they don't have any really background and they don't know the Greek, but they heard someone say this. And they'll say, see, believing is in the present tense, which means you have to keep on believing if you don't. You weren't really elect to begin with, or you're going to lose your salvation. Now, what are you going to say to that? Hmm? John 3:36. He who believes on the Son has eternal life. Guess what believe is there? What's the morphology of that? What would you think? You think that it is the uh, aorist active subjunctive? Huh? You know what it is? Present active participle. So if anybody has a little bit of knowledge, they can, they can derail you by saying, say, huh, you think it's a one-shot thing? You think all you have to do is believe in Christ and He's going to impute all these things to you? Hogwarts. That's in the present tense. So what are you going to do? Oh, I hate to leave on that note. <laughs> now, the chances of someone doing that are slim, but... We have to be ready to give an answer to anyone at any time. See? Sometimes people will say something with great dogmatism and they don't know anything about what they're saying. I think of the Jehovah Witnesses who have, in their New World Translation, have distorted the original language because in John... One one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that's the correct translation. But the New World Translation, the Jehovah Witnesses Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a, little g, God. Now, I have a huge problem with that. I used to talk to uh, Jehovah Witnesses in the past. I wish I knew the Greek then that I know now. Because they say, oh, you see, it has to have a definite article there. Well, where did that definite article come from? Well, it's in the Greek. What would you say to someone that made that statement? I think there's a couple, at least one guy here that would know. There is no definite, I mean, there is no indefinite article in the Greek. You know, the A, A is an indefinite article. A train, indefinite. What train? I don't know, A train. The train, definite article. And they say, well, it has to have a, a indefinite article there, meaning it was a God. And they say that the Greek demands it. And if you know anything, you can say, <laughs> there is no indefinite article in the Greek period. My, why I'm saying this is just because somebody says something with dogmatism and you're not sure about it, doesn't mean that it necessarily floats. That one sure doesn't. And the same thing with this argument about a present active participle and trying to make the case, see, you've got to keep on believing. I don't know if, i tell you what, if I was a Church of Christ pastor, I would hammer this into my congregation to, to show other people that you, it's not just faith alone, you've got to do good works. And if somebody said you had to do good works, you would say, well, hopefully... I don't know what you're going to say, but I hope it's a question. I hope you're, oh, yeah! <laughs> and then you start preaching. 
that's what we have to get away from. Okay, um, we'll pick this up next time. Some of you may not be here because I've already spilled the beans and said we're going to get into some grammar. We're going to know what participles are and infinitives and why that's important. But most of all, we're going to find out why the idea that you have to keep on believing or else you've lost your salvation is hogwash. And I'll show it to you in the grammar. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. We're so grateful for your grace, your love, your provision, your protection. We're so thankful for your word that changes not. And it is inherent, alive, and powerful. We pray that you will help us to concentrate to where all of these things go deep into our soul so that we can rightly divide the word of truth and not be threatened by those who would besmirch the grace that is presented in your mighty word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.